Thank you for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, coming to you one day before the start of the NBA Finals. The last time you heard from us, it was just at the beginning of the playoffs. The Pistons, their playoff hopes were alive, but of course against the Cavaliers. It was just nice to be in the playoffs. We have plenty to talk about, not just about our Pistons, but also about the NBA Finals. Uh, Quite a bit to go through. Thank you, everyone, for continuing to support this podcast. Uh, I I was shocked to see how many listens we've gotten over the last month while everyone's enjoying playoff basketball. It's been great. So to join me to talk about the finals and to talk about our Pistons as we preview the offseason is Ben Galker. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great. It's good to be back. I hope everyone's enjoyed the playoffs. You know, I've had a ton of fun watching basketball over the past month. It's tough to see the Pistons get swept, admittedly, but, uh, you know, once I moved on from that, we've seen some really awesome basketball. So, just as a basketball fan, you know, I love the months of May and June. Best basketball in the world happening right now. That's right. College basketball has March Madness, and the NBA has April, May, and most of June Madness. That's just how it goes. Absolutely. All right, well, let's just start off at the top. You know, we're a day away from the NBA Finals. We're getting the rematch that I think so many basketball fans wanted. We have the 73-win Warriors going for back-to-back titles, taking on a fully healthy Cleveland Cavaliers team that uh, I think we both know quite a bit about after this season with uh, as many times the Pistons had faced them this year. So let's just start with a prediction. We'll go through the Finals, and then I've got a couple questions to tie in the Pistons, Ben. So who you got in how many games and why? Yeah, so I, I'm going to go with the Warriors. Um, I, I think that's probably the easiest pick I've ever had to make in the NBA Finals. I think the Cavs have some some problem matchups. Obviously, LeBron James is a problem matchup for every other team in the NBA. Um, so I don't think it's going to be a pushover, but I think Warriors in six. I think Cleveland's going to win twice at home, uh, but I think the Warriors are going to take it in six games. Yeah, I actually have the Warriors in five. I know with the Cavaliers being completely healthy, it's going to be a very different finals from what we saw last year. Uh, I think a lot of people remember the style of basketball Cleveland was kind of forced to play. And, you know, LeBron James basically playing hero ball and almost becoming an MVP of the finals on a losing team. Uh, he was incredible. But I worry a bit about Cleveland's defense against this Golden State team and, and how they're going to be able to, to how they're going to be able to hang with Golden State. Uh, especially defending the three-point shot. I think Cleveland's gotten pretty lucky so far in their matchups in the East. Uh, so I'm actually going to take Golden State in five, and I think a lot of it is just the matchups. The more I think about it, if Golden State, you know, as long as they can take one of the first two, I think they're they're good to get this, at, at least to get it back-to-back, and I, I, I just happen to like them in five. Yeah, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. I, I think... Six is probably a little generous. I, I just think that LeBron James on his own, you mentioned how good he was last year. And, I mean, per, to be perfectly honest with you, I think, I, I think he was so much better than Iguodala that he was almost deserving of the MVPs by being on the losing team. But, you know, personally, I just, I'm inclined to think that LeBron is just that good, and he's going to be able to piggyback them to a couple at home. But we will obviously see. I don't know if we've had this conversation on the podcast, but I've had it a few times recently. Is he the best player on the planet? Is LeBron still the best? Man, that is such a hard question. (laughs) Two years ago, I wouldn't hesitate and say yes. Um, It depends on how you look at it, right? So in any one-on-one matchup, I would take LeBron James over everybody else on the planet. 
But in the context of a five-man team-oriented game, man, it's it's really hard for me to pick against Steph Curry right now. I mean, what he's able to do um, beyond the three-point line and lift the ball in his hands off the dribble, it doesn't matter if the guy defending him is a foot taller, uh, has 50 pounds on it. It just doesn't matter. He's able to get wherever he wants and get up a shot over any defender at any time. And it's remarkable that the most difficult shots uh, you can imagine still have a relatively high chance of going in. So offensively, man, it's hard for me to pick against Steph. Now, if you think about the defensive side of the ball, obviously Brown's got the, the advantage there. But I, I can't argue against clearly the best player on the best team to ever play the game. I, right now, I just can't pick against Steph. Yeah, I think it, that's completely fair. And I think right at the end of the regular season, I easily would have said Steph Curry is the best player on the planet. But what LeBron James has shown in the playoffs, and a lot of it's just that he's shooting so well. That was kind of the the problem he was having during the regular season is, you know, uh, teams weren't having to respect him uh, when he was outside the arc. And, and now in the playoffs, he, he's shooting well. You still know you have to worry about him. Uh, running the offense. He can facilitate an offense better than most point guards in the league. I think he's one of the best passers in the game currently. And his post game has been so good after probably that second year in Miami, he's become one of the better post players at his size. Uh, I, I kind of hesitate with Curry, and I'm starting to think it's LeBron again. I, I've just been really impressed by him in the playoffs. Uh, and I am keeping in mind that it was against the Eastern Conference. And, and it's not to take anything away from the, the matchups, but um, I, I, I'm starting to think again that he's he's cemented himself at the top, uh, and that's even before you consider Steph Curry's injury, which you know he missed a few games, but I still think LeBron is is back up on top. Yeah, I mean it's it's at the point where they're so close that I can't fault anybody for making the pick that they make, and I think you're right. In the playoffs, LeBron has been absolutely dominant and the Cavs have been dominant I mean apart from those two games in Toronto where Toronto just kind of went crazy I I mean he's been unstoppable I mean there's no other way to put it so yeah I don't find any fault in your reasoning whatsoever he's been absolutely fantastic and I think you know one of the things that's interesting as he gets older um, I've been waiting for a long time for him to go to the post and, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I think that's a more sustainable way to score points as, you know, eventually his body's going to start wearing down a little bit. And, you know, Michael Jordan did that later in his career. Kobe obviously did that throughout his career. But he's a nightmare matchup in the post for just about anyone. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch the next year, the next two years, if if developing that option actually gives him some longevity that he might not otherwise been able to have. Yeah, you're right. He's at the point now that we have to write – the next step in his career. And if we're writing about, you know, the next four or five seasons for LeBron, I wonder if he starts to focus on the three-point, his three-point shooting and kind of turning himself into a stretch four of sorts, which I think just because, just because of the way he plays and his attitude on the basketball court, I think it would be really hard for him to play similarly to how Kevin Love is used sometimes in that offense. I, I have a feeling you're right. He'll go to the post game, and I think he would be smart to do that. It might be tougher on his body, but I just don't know if I can see him laying back and becoming just a perimeter player or becoming a you know a role player on the offensive end. Uh, and I still think he's got three or four years of not peak performance, but still you know 
all NBA first or second team. Oh yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. I mean, he's had he's a physical specimen. I mean, he's a a once in a generation sort of athletic talent. Um, and really, when you watch him play, when he's had a day or two of rest, he still jumps as high as he's ever jumped. He still runs as fast as he's ever run. That's true. And he's adding these things like we talked about, like the post game. So I completely agree with you. At 31 years old, he still looks like he's in the prime of his career right now. Uh, and even a, a 75% of what LeBron James is right now is still a first or second team on NBA player. I think you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and what we saw in the finals last year, I'm not sure if we'll see a repeat performance. And part of that is probably just having guys on the floor that he will feel comfortable giving the ball to. He can allow Kyrie Irving to create. He can give the ball to Kevin Love. Uh, Channing Frye has played well at times during the playoffs. So I'm really interested in this series to watch Kyrie Irving. And I think he could be a huge X factor because if he can do anything defensively, it could almost switch the entire series because I think the problem Tyron Lue is probably facing right now before Game 1 starts is how do I guard Golden State? Do you, do you have any ideas of what would be best for Cleveland on, on how you deal with Golden State's offense? Man, so much of it depends on how they choose to play. I think one of the things you mentioned, Channing Fry, um, I think one of the things Cleveland was able to do in the Eastern Conference that isn't going to work that well against Golden State is going small, right? So you put Love... Love at the five, LeBron or Channing Fry at the four, and then you go from there with your one, two, and three. Golden State has the personnel to counter that, I think, relatively easily. Um, I think with respect to defense, I think we'll probably see in in short spurts, especially in crunch time, LeBron covering Steph a little bit. Um, I think that I'm hoping that happens because I think that's just so much fun to watch. Um but Golden State, when they go small, you know, if they run Draymond at the five, they can really cause some problems for Cleveland because, like I said, that's been sort of Cleveland's, you know, their small second unit has given teams fits in the Eastern Conference. It's just not going to work on either end of the floor against Golden State the way it has in the East. So, you know, Kyrie, his defense is suspect, but as a team, I think J.R. Smith has defended incredibly well during the playoffs, and yes. all things considered. Yeah. I think defensively, Cleveland has really uh, stepped it up a little bit uh, over what we saw in the regular season. So uh, as much as I don't think they're, you know, individually their perimeter defenders are great, uh, they've been surprisingly effective. Um, so that's a long way of saying I hope we get to see LeBron defend stuff a little bit because as a basketball fan, that's just fun to watch. Um, but I think Golden State's small lineup – is still going to be trouble for, for Cleveland the way it's been trouble for, you know, everyone else in the NBA this year. Yeah, and I think the whole NBA just learned a lesson about how you can defend Golden State, but just not many teams have the length of Oklahoma City to really disrupt Golden State and, and to force them into taking some shots that they're not quite comfortable with. So I think, you know, unless you have Kevin Durant, Serge Ibaka, uh, Steven Adams, which you've, you have some very good forwards. Cleveland has some very good forwards, but I'm, they're just not quite up to the level of Oklahoma City defensively, and I think it's going to be really difficult to stop Golden State from going on runs when they have a good matchup on the floor, like you're talking about. When they find what's going to work and it, it can go for three, four minutes uh, of the game, that I think can be really detrimental for Cleveland. Uh, but I still expect it to be a very good finals. LeBron James is not going to go out quietly. Um, and it will be interesting to see Tyron Lue coaching a finals team. 
I did not think I was ever going to say that in my, my basketball-watching life. I don't think I had thought about Teron Liu since he played for the Lakers yes. and defended Allen Iverson in the finals, honestly. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he did defend Allen Iverson in the finals. Yeah, before this season, I had not thought of him in a very long time. Um, but yeah, I think one other thing to, to pay attention to in the series, and it, it just about was Golden State's undoing mm-hmm. against Oklahoma City. You mentioned Steven Adams. Steven Adams was an absolute monster on the offensive glass uh, for Oklahoma City, and Golden State had very few answers for that. Um, they they went small so frequently. Um, and, you know, Draymond's a good rebounder for his size, but Adams was just too big. So I'm really interested to see. In my opinion, Tristan Thompson could be a bit of an X factor for Cleveland. If they can find the right lineup um, where he can exploit the offensive rebounding weakness, well, it's a defensive rebounding weakness for Golden uh, for Golden State, he might be able to be a menace, and he might um, cause Kerr to think twice about going small for uh, as many minutes as he would like to. So I would say keep your eye on, on Tristan Thompson, whether or not he's able to establish himself uh, on the offensive glass. That's a great point, and I think he gives them an opportunity to go small, having him at the five and being able to play LeBron with him at the four. Uh, just because he's such a good rebounder. And we saw that in last year's finals, and I, I tend to think that's why he got paid so well uh, right at the start of this season was they need him for a matchup with Golden State. So I would love to see like a Kyrie Irving, Delavadova, Shumpert, James, and Tristan Thompson, five out there at one point. Uh, because you're right, if they figure out what five can make it work with Thompson, that could be very deadly for how... how quality of a rebounder he is Um, yeah and and I think you know as as I've been talking about the small lineup for Golden State can be so crazy effective for teams that can't defend it really both of these teams have five-man units that cause problems for the other so you know Tyron Luke coaching in the finals versus Steve Kerr coaching in the finals you know you don't think of Steve Kerr necessarily as a, a chess player when it comes to strategy and matchups and all those things. At least that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. But I think there'll be some interesting opportunities for that to occur. Uh, it, it could be interesting to see what changes from game to game or even from half to half uh, when those coaches get a chance to sort of sit down and evaluate uh, the units that they're putting out on the floor. Yeah, that's very true. And our coach, Stan Van Gundy, has talked a little bit about the finals. He was on 105.1 in Detroit. Uh, recently, and said that his Pistons team can learn quite a bit by watching these finals. He didn't get into a lot of uh, detail by what he meant by that. So I'm going to ask you, what can the Pistons learn from watching the finals? Is there anything they can learn about becoming a contender? That's an awesome question. Um, I think if if you're going to pat, it looks to me like if the Pistons are patterning, patterning after either one of these teams, it's I would lean more towards Cleveland than Golden State because I think Golden State is just sort of this unique thing. And they have these unique talents that you're just not going to be able to duplicate or acquire. I mean, Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson, they're just out of this world shooters that you're just not going to get. I think one of the things that was a weakness for Detroit all season long was consistent effort on the defensive side of the ball. And as I mentioned, Cleveland's defense in the playoffs has been absolutely stifling mm-hmm. at times. And it's because everyone on the team has bought into it. I mean, even a guy like Kevin Love, who has not been thought of as a lockdown defender by any stretch of the imagination, and, and still isn't, but has been a quality team defender. And I think 
from the perspective of the Pistons right now, we really only have that one guy in Contavious Caldwell Pope that we would consider a sort of lockdown defender, and we don't really have that anywhere else on the floor. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be learned in terms of team defense, and, and frankly, um, I think Cleveland overachieving on the defensive side of the ball. You look at their individual talent level, and like I mentioned, Kyrie, not known as a great defender. J.R. Smith, not known as a great defender, but has really stepped it up. LeBron, of course, an all-world uh, defender. But, you know, none of their big guys are, you know, amazing defenders. As a team, they're able to put together a very, very quality uh, defensive ever. So that's where I would look first, and I think a lot of it has to do with consistently defending with intensity and, and as cliche as it sounds, focus on every given possession. And that that's definitely an area the Pistons can learn, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think Cleveland learned something after those two losses in Toronto. And they saw how, you know, just allowing DeRozan and Lowry, giving them a little bit of space, and even for as well as J.R. Smith was defending, uh, I, I think those two really killed them. I mean, those were clearly the two players that uh, made the difference in Toronto's two wins in the Eastern Conference Finals. If you have that type of effort on the defensive end, uh, Cleveland, that they had against Toronto in games three and four, if you have that against Golden State, you're going to lose by 25. I mean, Klay Thompson and Steph Curry are just too good. They can kill you from outside. They're much better shooters than than DeMar and, and Kyle Lowry. So you're right that I think that effort is so important for Cleveland. And if that intensity is there, and I'm sure having LeBron James in the finals, that intensity is going to be there and he's going to rally the troops. But if they can stay focused on the defensive end, and for me it kind of comes back to to Kyrie Irving. If they can get enough out of him defending Stephen Curry, that can make a huge difference in this series because we saw what happened when a backcourt can get hot against Cleveland. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. There's there's very, very little margin for error uh, for Cleveland on either side of the ball, but especially defense. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, a little bit more about the Pistons and kind of how they work into these finals. Uh, there was an article recently by HypnoWheel on DetroitBadBoys.com talking about the Pistons being the top contender in the East to the Cavs. Uh, I'm not sure if you got a chance to read it, but do you agree that the Pistons now are kind of positioning themselves as the top contender to the Cavs? Well, they just got swept in <laughs> a very convincing fashion. And although I would say that every individual game, the Pistons really played fairly competitively, mm-hmm. the outcome of that series was never even remotely a question. Now, to be fair to Detroit, the Hawks didn't put up much of a fight either. And the Raptors only put up a fight for two games at home. So it's not as if anyone in the East is miles ahead of Detroit in their pursuit of Cleveland. I, I think, obviously, the road still goes through Cleveland for another two, three, maybe even four years, depending how they're able to keep that roster together. Um, but I, I just don't think the Pistons are there. I, I don't agree that at least a year from now, they're going to be the top contender um, trying to take out Cleveland and unseat them as the uh, Eastern Conference champions. I just don't think they're there yet. I think even watching Toronto play... Uh, in that series against Cleveland, it was obvious to me that Toronto as a team 
is still several steps ahead of where Detroit is now. And I still think it's two to three years away. It's a lot of internal development away. And I think it's two to three upgrades in terms of talent at key positions uh, before we can seriously talk about Detroit being a 50 to 55 win team. And that's what they're going to need to be in order to, to really threaten Cleveland in the playoffs. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree that it might be a little too early to say that, you know, we are, we're now the top dog. Uh, we're now the next title contender uh, to take on Cleveland. I, I agree with you. It might be a little early to say that before we see what they do this off season and continue to kind of build that core. But after watching the Cavs in the playoffs, do you feel any better about the Pistons' effort against the Cavs after seeing them against Atlanta and against Toronto? Yeah, and I mean, I was never really down about the Pistons' performance. I, you know, I, I still stand by kind of my analysis that I did prior to the series, and that was that Detroit played Cleveland really tough in the regular season, and they had a chance to push the game to six, or the series to six games. And even with the benefit of hindsight and seeing what Cleveland did, I still think that was the right call because I think that's what Detroit proved they were able to do, and they just kind of crumbled uh, in some key moments. But I was never down on the Pistons' performance against the Cavs. Like I said, I think in every game there were moments. I, I literally think this is true. Within each of those four games where the Pistons had the opportunity um, to threaten a win. And I think when you're looking at a one-versus-eight matchup, there's always good successes you can find and, and positive lessons to be learned from a series like that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen one playoff win, I think, from the perspective mm-hmm. of the morale of the fan base, from the perspective of players believing in themselves and teammates believing in each other. I think that would have been a really positive uh, thing for the future of the franchise. But, I mean, what they did over the course of 82 games of the regular season and what they did in Cleveland, everything's pointing in the right direction. I just don't think the Pistons are as far along on that trajectory as maybe some of the other fans do. Yeah, I agree with you. And I I think it's because, you know, when I look at this roster, there are positions that I really worry about. And I I see how the team is being built, and I really like how the team is being built. I think Stan Van Gundy and Jeff Bauer have done a great job, given that, you know, they, they came into a situation where you had Andre Drummond and a cast of players that didn't really make sense. And in two seasons, to turn that into a playoff team with only having one draft pick to work with in those two off seasons, I, I think it's it's pretty commendable. I, I think the front office has done a great job, but you're right. It's now on player development and finding talent. I, I think we need to luck into someone in the draft. We need to find our Damari Carroll, the way Atlanta did when they became a 50-win team. We have to find that, that veteran piece that can work into the rotation, and some of these younger players have to step up. Uh, I think it can be done in, you know, maybe this next offseason, but uh, it's it's a lot to be done in one offseason. Yeah, and I'm going to harp on defense a little bit more because I was pretty bullish about the Pistons' defense through 20 or 30 games. I thought they were playing fantastic defense uh, at the team level. But really, and this was especially obvious uh, after the All-Star game and after the All-Star break, the Pistons' defense really just sort of fell apart. Some of that has to do with, I think, the, you know, the player movement, Brandon Jennings coming back from injury, then getting traded, and Steve Blake is in and out of the lineup, and then obviously Airson gets traded for Tobias and all of those things. So there are reasons why I think some of that stuff happened. But look, 
the truth of the matter is that the Pistons defense is nowhere near good enough um, to be a serious contender for the Eastern Conference uh, championship right now. It's just nowhere near good enough. Kevin Love, and this feels like a year ago already, but it was just a few weeks ago, Kevin Love dismantled Tobias Harris yes. in the playoffs. And as much as I love what Tobias you know, has done for the Pistons in the regular season, he disappeared on both ends of the court for the overwhelming majority of that series. So there are really significant pieces of development that have to occur before we can say with a straight face that the Pistons are really ready to challenge uh, Cleveland in any meaningful way. Yeah, I, I agree with that because one of the biggest disappointments I had from that first round sweep was Tobias Harris. I completely agree. That was the player that the pressure was really on him on the defensive end to do something with Kevin Love. Yeah. Because it was Kevin Love and just bigs that shoot in general that have killed the Pistons. We saw it all throughout the season that any stretch four or five that could shoot well from behind the arc had killed the Pistons throughout the last two seasons. And Tobias Harris has to become the player that can take the pressure off the defense and lock somebody up like that. Because it's asking Andre Drummond too much to step out of the paint. And I I think we need him as a rim protector. We need him playing closer to the basket. So it's really up to that player at the four. And that's why I think, and I'm not sure if you agree with this, this summer I'm looking for player development to be the big difference between playoff year one and playoff year two. If we can make the playoffs next year, it's player development we need to focus on with Reggie Jackson's defense, Andre Drummond is a rim protector and improving as a free throw shooter, and Tobias Harris becoming a more complete player. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I think long term, and I don't know that this summer is the summer that it happens or not, I think it's probably... I think they probably roll one more year with some of these young guys and see how far they can actually get them in terms of that internal player development. Long term, I think they need more pieces, but I think you're right because, I mean, Tobias, really, you know, he had a fantastic season for Orlando a year ago. And then there was, you know, a whole bunch of changes down there, and he really just started to fall off the radar. And that can be really difficult as a young player, which he really is. He's still a very young player. Yes, that's true. That can be really difficult to navigate. And, you know, he did a fantastic job of adapting and contributing on the offensive side of the ball right away. But it's clear, you know, like we've talked about, he's got a long way to go on the defensive side of the ball. So, you know, think about it. If if he improves as a team defender, if Drummond improves as a team defender, if the NBA bails him out and changes the free throw rule, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that right there can add up to a, a couple wins over the course of the season. And then you you have to figure that we're going to have a better backup point guard situation. You've got to figure that a healthy Jody Meeks is going to do wonders for that second unit. So, yeah, you know, I don't think that gets you from 43 wins to the 55 wins that you really need to be, like I said, to be a contender in the East. But maybe it gets you from 43 to 48. And then you're one significant incremental step away, you know, from being the team that that pushes Cleveland to the limit. Yeah, that's very true. And we're going into a summer with Andre Drummond that's so important. And I like that you mentioned that the rules might bail him out. And, And he's someone that... If, if he gets an opportunity from, you know, maybe a change in the hack of rule and just kind of focusing a bit on improving as a free throw shooter anyway, because he'll, even if they improve this, uh, even if they change this rule, he needs to improve as a, as a free throw shooter. He's going to find himself at the line sometimes. Uh, but that's someone that could be the centerpiece 
of a title team, if he becomes a player that can put up Dwight Howard-level numbers when he was playing under Stan Van Gundy, you know, 20-plus points a game, 12-plus rebounds a game, that's what I want to see from Andre Drummond. And that was kind of called into question recently by the Detroit media. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw Drew Sharp's article that came out yesterday. Uh, and the title was kind of his whole hypothesis for the article, and it was, uh, The Pistons Won't Contend for a Title with Drummond as the Centerpiece. Do you agree with that hypothesis from Drew Sharp? Well, I, I don't want to bash Drew Sharp because I don't know the guy, and I have all the reasons to think he's a good guy, but I think that's nonsense, <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. I would tell him to go watch um, the Dallas Mavericks, and I would tell him to redefine and broaden what it means to be the centerpiece. Because, and I would say this, I would say also say go back and watch the 0304 Pistons. Yeah. When people say centerpiece, that's usually just a code word for a guy who scores a lot of points. And, you know, my thing, I've talked about this in the podcast a lot of times, there's three parts of the game. There's defense, offense, when you have the ball, when the other team has the ball, and when no one has the ball. Drummond's already dominant. He's the best player on the planet on one-third of those three things, right? He's the best rebounder in the world, and it's not even really that close. If he could become 60 to 70% of the team defender that Tyson Chandler was the year that Dallas won the NBA championship, I don't know how you could look at him and say he's not the centerpiece of the franchise because he absolutely would be because he's already a superior offense player to Tyson Chandler. So to me, yes, absolutely. He can be the centerpiece of a championship team, but only if you're talking about centerpiece in a way that's broader than just a guy who scores 25 points a game, because I don't, I don't think that's in the stars for him. I think, you know, 18, maybe 20 points a game is his, his ceiling, but you know, that's that's not the only part of the game. It's not the only part of the game that matters. That's and very true. there's other ways to score points. You don't have to have one guy do it. Again, look at the 0304 Pistons, a balanced scoring attack built around, you know, a floor general who was very efficient, and then a defense built around a dominant defender and rebounder. So, you know, I, I, I think that's kind of a nonsense proposition, and I, I sort of reject the assumption that centerpiece is is what he thinks the centerpiece is. I, I just don't share his definition of that term. Yeah, and, and just to go off the article a little bit, I know part of what Drew Sharp is doing by writing a piece like this and titling it in such a way is just to get a rise out of fans, to create a conversation about someone that's about to get paid big boy money this summer. He's going to get his max deal, and the things that Drew Sharp focuses on in the piece are really today's NBA and the way Andre Drummond fits into that. And the worries I have about Andre Drummond are kind of intangible things. Uh, and I know we've talked, uh, when Hypno Wheel's been on the podcast before, we've talked about body language and motivation and kind of his motor on the floor at times. And you're right that to become a, a Tyson Chandler level defender, you have to care on that end of the floor. And you have to care on almost every possession. You can't find yourself out of place. Uh, and especially if you're going to be the primary rim protector. Uh, you have to do a, a good job when you're called upon, you know, when you're taken out of the paint. And I worry about him in pick and roll, deep, in the pick and roll and things where he has to move away from the basket. Uh, and I think some of that is just effort, and I think it's concentration. And because of that, I do worry about him as a centerpiece. Uh, but you're right. That's only part of the game, and a more balanced attack and <laughs> having better pieces around him might take the pressure off of him a bit, but I, I still worry about those intangibles with Andre Drummond. 
No, I think your point, your points are well taken. I think, you know, interestingly, when Andre is on defense on the perimeter, he's actually much better defending a ball handler than he is trying to hedge on a pick and roll for whatever reason. I mean, he's got the physical tools to strip Dwayne Wade and take it, you know, coast to coast for a dunk. So we know the tools are there to be a competent, you know, off the ball pick and roll help defender, so to speak. Um, so some of that I think is teaching. I think some of it has to do with watching game film. And you know, this is a this is a theory. I don't, you know, and I'm not too committed to it yet because maybe it's wrong. But I think um, since Van Gundy took over, I think. And my reason for saying this is because Van Gundy has really spoon-fed him the ball, especially last season, a year ago, when his postgame just was really immature and underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. And my point is simply to say, I don't know if Stan Van Gundy knows yet what type of player he wants Andre Drummond to become. I think That's a good there's really been a lot of experimenting. There's been a lot of you know trial and error when it comes to Andre Drummond's offensive game. And you know I think it's possible that some of, some maybe disproportionate amount of the focus has been on that end of the ball on trying to figure out where his limits are and what his ceiling is and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think it would, it would be really interesting to watch over the course of this summer, you know, the stuff that's coming out of the Pistons camp, coming from the coaching staff and so on and so forth, and what we see in the preseason with respect to Andre Drummond's defense, because I think so much of the effort has been around trying to figure out what do we have with Andre Drummond in terms of an offensive player, mm-hmm. not what do we had with Drummond in terms of like a Tyson Chandler sort of defender. So I guess my point is to say, I don't know that they've really focused on that enough yet because they're really trying to figure out who he is on offense and building around that. So my hope is that that's the next part of the internal development process is figuring out, okay, what is Andre Drummond as a defender? And you know, what are the one or two things he can improve on over the course of the summer to become a better team defender by the time the next season starts. That's very true. And I I think fans need to keep that in mind and just have the perspective of how young this team is, especially just the core of this team. Reggie Jackson being the oldest player that's part of that that core for the Pistons moving forward. And what's Reggie, 25, 26? I think he turned 26, yeah, toward the end of the season. Toward the end of the season, right. So you've got a, a very young team. And I think fans need to keep the long game in mind because if you look at the New Orleans Pelicans last year or the Milwaukee Bucks, who looked like two young teams that were just, you know, poised to be in the playoffs and, you know, they'll find their break at some point, and they took a step back that second season. And part of that was just, you know, different issues that each team was working with. But to just think the Pistons will, you know, always be in the playoffs and just continue to try to develop and, you know, hopefully they can get to that next level is asking quite a bit of a very young core. And that's why I think that the development of that core is going to be so so important this summer, because you're right. We have to figure out how these players work together and which ones are worth keeping. Uh, And one that I know you question quite a bit, if he, if he's worthy of being in that core and worthy of being a starting caliber player is Reggie Jackson. And Reggie's gotten himself into a bit of trouble recently after the Thunder loss with kind of his antics on on Twitter, which was just kind of stupid. But my my larger question about Reggie Jackson is just, if you could only pick one thing of of what I'm... uh, Here, let me rephrase that. So only pick one of the things I'm going to uh, 
uh, present you with Reggie Jackson this summer. If he can improve as a teammate and become a better teammate, or if he can improve as a defender and become a better defender, which would you rather see out of Reggie Jackson this next season with Detroit? Gosh, that is such a good question. I think there's something to be said. I'm not a big guy that overemphasizes intangibles. I'm really kind of a show me it in the numbers and show me it in the film or it doesn't exist kind of person a lot of the time. But I have kind of a soft spot for the intangibles when it comes to point guards. And I think being such a huge fan of the Chauncey Billups Pistons (laughs) sort of molded that in me. Um, But his defense really needs work too, so it's a really hard (laughs) question. But I think, for me, the Pistons obviously lack... They lack that one player who takes responsibility for what's happening on both ends of the court when things get tough. They don't currently have that player. Mm -hmm. We've talked about whether or not that could be an older veteran that they bring in to help bolster things in the locker room, or whether that could be something that develops uh, internally. So to me, gosh, I I say like, I'm like 55-45 on this, but I would lead toward Reggie Jackson being a better teammate, being more of a player who is up, And by that, I mean emotionally up and emotionally engaged. Mm -hmm. Even when his own game personally isn't going as as good as he might want it to. I would like to see some of that from Reggie Jackson because, to me, I I think the Pistons sorely need that. And I I don't see who else fits in that role, especially given how significant a role... Uh, Reggie plays on the offensive side of the floor. So I think 55-45, I lean towards, you know, teammate from the perspective of kind of that floor general who rallies the troops when things are tough. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I was back and forth on this, and that's why I wanted to ask you. But I initially thought definitely better teammate because I know a lot of people give Reggie Jackson a lot of credit for how productive he is Uh, in the last two minutes of games and in the fourth quarter. He was one of the most productive players in the league, on par with Stephen Curry in terms of, you know, points per game in the fourth quarter uh, and points in the last two minutes. Part of that is just no one else sees the ball when he's on the floor at the end of the game. (laughs) That's a good point. And part of it is I just, I don't know if he has trust in other players. I don't know if it's a bit of hero ball and it's just ego that gets in the way, but I would like to see him start to move the ball a little bit more. And I'm sure Stan Van Gundy would as well in late-game situations. And also in early, and also earlier in the game, when there's opportunities for the Pistons to, to go on runs and, and put teams away so they don't find themselves in close-game situations at the end of games, I think he has to become a better teammate first. Uh, in terms of him as a defender, he has all the tools. And I think we we see moments when he puts it together, and I'm just not sure, and it's really frustrating, but I'm just not sure why it doesn't happen more often. Because he's had really good games as a defender. Yeah, and I, we've talked a lot about fatigue on the podcast, so I hate to beat a dead horse, but something is up with Reggie's fatigue. Because he, I mean, I feel like every time I see him, every time there's a shot, you know, that sort of zooms in on him. He's breathing hard all the time, and I don't know if that's, you know, there was rumors about asthma, I think, at one point, a variety of other things going on, but to me, it looks like he catches his breath on defense, and, you know, I don't think that he's going to ever become the defender he's given. He's got a great wingspan, he's he's fast, he's quick, he's got an excellent first step. 
there's no reason why he can't be league average, you know, for a starting point guard. Um, but man, he just looks fatigued to me all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, so yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question because I think you know, at least for another year or two, their Pistons are pretty bought into Reggie Jackson as a starting point guard. And there's some glaring deficiencies. There's some outstanding strengths, no question about it. But there's some glaring deficiencies that I think put a little bit of a limit on how far the Pistons are going to go if he doesn't improve. Yeah, that's true. And I didn't think about the conditioning. And you're right, there were the rumors that, you know, is it asthma? Is there something at the end of games that, you know, uh, is is kind of just limiting for him physically? Uh, if, if that's the case, he has to work on his conditioning because – He's our starter. He is someone that we've we've paid to be a very big part of this team going forward. So, awesome. so we need more from him. Uh, and I'm not just talking about incredible production at the end of games because part of that I think is again skewed just because of the way he plays at the end of games. Uh, yeah. I need to see more throughout the game. I need to see more consistency at both ends of the floor. And I think some of that is attitude. So I, I think again he needs to work on becoming a better teammate. And I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think there, there is. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I want to withhold judgment because I think this is his first year as a starter in the NBA, so there's obviously a lot of maturing that comes along with that. That's very but true. there's some ego issues there. And I think that might factor into a little bit of the hero ball. So I think he's got to learn. And yeah. I think Van Gundy is a coach who has a long history of getting that sort of production out of point guards. And with Reggie, I just want to piggyback on one point that you made. We don't really need any more production in terms of raw numbers. I mean, the points the assists, the shooting percentage, that's all there. I mean, if he doesn't improve, if he puts up those exact numbers a year from now, I'll be fine with that. Yeah. If it's accompanied by some of these other things that, that we've just unpacked and discussed a little bit. And one last point, and second to last point was the last one, I guess. With respect to conditioning, I think Reggie's, the number of minutes that he plays undersells how much effort he expends on the court. Because when you look at the Pistons' offense for the first, you know, 40 to 50 games of the season, there was Reggie with the ball in his hands, or there was Andre in the post, and that was kind of a disaster. So he carried a huge load for more than half of the season, and it wasn't really until Jennings came back and then the trade for Tobias, where we even had anything that resembled a secondary ball handler. So I think that might have factored into things as well. He sort of, he learned some habits, it wore him down physically, and he sort of tended toward hero ball because that's what he did for such a big chunk of the season. That's very true. And I think another thing that, you know, I haven't, I actually, I saw it mentioned in a game thread in one of the playoff games on Detroit Bad Boys, and it was just mentioning how little Reggie Jackson has played with Jody Meeks, and that yeah. giving him another uh, reliable ball handler and someone else in the backcourt that can shoot, has a consistent game, is a veteran that might, you know, might have a, a you know, uh, might just have a different, what do I want to say? a different feel on the court from KCP. It's, it's a different type of player that might be nice, a nice compliment for Reggie Jackson. Uh, I think that makes next year important for, for Jody Meeks, and I hope he is part of the team next season. I know that Jody Meeks, as I see all of these off-season plans that are being posted, and I know I've posted my own, Jody Meeks is kind of the hot trade chip for everybody. I'm not sure if you've yeah. seen this, Ben, but yeah. I would like to see him in a Pistons uniform next season because he's played so little with our starting point guard. Look, if, if he can produce over the course of 80, what he produced in the last 20 games after he came back from that injury in his first seasons with the Pistons, there's not a point guard 
anywhere, or excuse me, a shooting guard anywhere for seven or eight million dollars or whatever he's paying them, the Pistons can acquire for the equivalent amount of production. I mean, yes. I, I think when he was signed, I sort of felt like well, that seems like a big contract. But now, looking at the free agent market and what you know, guys like Dellavedova are likely to get paid ten, twelve, fourteen million dollars a year. If Jody Meeks can do what he did over those twenty games for eight million dollars a year, who who that is realistically available can replicate that for the Detroit Pistons? I can't think of anybody barring some you know blockbuster three team trade that sends us Danny Green so that the Spurs can sign Kevin Durant, you know, something crazy like that. So I think absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, KCP on offense, he's mostly a guy who kind of stands in the corner or takes an ill-advised pull-up jumper. Frankly, that's what he does about 85% of the time. <laughs> Jody is a much more complete offensive player. And the, the thing I really like about him on offense is how well he moves without the ball. Yes. And that's one thing. When the Pistons, when things start getting tough for the Pistons, they resort to dribble, 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 dribble. Jody might be able to break some of that up with his movement and his shooting. So absolutely, totally agree with you. Would love to see a healthy Jody Meeks contribute. Yeah, and I think having him you know, as the backup to KCP and, and seeing a, a lion's share of the minutes at the two would be great. And, you know, even, even though we have Reggie Bullock, I don't want to see him forced into a larger role if we don't have to. Uh, and... I know the point guard crop this summer is weak, but I would rather get a weaker point guard, just in terms of like overall production, if like all things are equal, get less out of the point guard position if it meant getting what we saw from Jody Meeks at the end of last season. Because that type of player could be huge for the Pistons uh, if they want to kind of take that next step. Uh, and we haven't seen it with Reggie Jackson, but we saw what he was able to do at the end of the what, 2014-15 season for about a stretch of 15 games. Uh, Jody Meeks could be a very big part uh, of the Pistons' success next season. Well, yeah, and I mean, look, historically, and even this season, every team that's up there in terms of being a legitimate contender has a second unit that can contribute in interesting and unique ways. I mean, look at the Warriors with Livingston, for example, at point guard. A guy who completely changes the dynamic of what they're able to do offensively coming off the bench. Now, OKC, maybe a little bit less so, because they're still centered around, you know, Russ and Durant. But I think that's true for um, San Antonio. I think it's true to some degree for um, Cleveland as well. And the Pistons don't have any of that. I mean, this year, you're just hoping that they don't give up, you know, like they don't have a negative 10 rating by the end of the game. That's what you're (laughs) looking for out of the bench. So, yeah, absolutely. It'd be great to have a guy like Jody who can give you something different from your you're starting to guard and a guy who can really make you look forward to the second unit getting a chance to contribute to the game because you're confident that they'll actually contribute uh, and hopefully hold serve while you're starting to catch and breather. Yeah, it's very true. And I think one of the major priorities this summer is uh, improving that second unit because you're right. Teams are just having to go nine, 10 deep and we're seeing it even in the playoffs. Now, a lot of people gave Billy Donovan credit for kind of shortening his bench finding ways to stagger minutes for his better players, but he was still having to use nine guys at times against Golden State because it's the pace of the game forces you to use more players. Guys just are going to need the rest uh, when the game is moving at such a clip. So the Pistons need to think about that as well. And you're right, it's improving the bench that I think has to be a big priority this summer. Uh, so if we're just kind of ranking priorities, what's what's top on your list? Do you have a number one priority this offseason? 
Well, hey, I'm going to exclude the draft because I think drafting well, you you know, you always want to draft well. That's a given. <laughs> and the Pistons are, realistically, you're looking at a guy who at best is going to be a ninth in your rotation anyway. So I don't see the draft this year as giving us an immediate influx of talent. I think you're probably looking at a guy who's a project and you're hoping he becomes an eighth man or something like that. Um, but my priority list, I think they have to have somebody who can handle the ball that could be a point guard. It might be a three, mm-hmm. might be a two. Uh, maybe Meeks plays this, this role as well. I want to have somebody who can spell Reggie Jackson, not necessarily at the point guard position, but someone in the second unit who can handle the ball and initiate the team offense because that just didn't happen last year. So that would be right up there. Um, on my list of priorities. The second one, and this is a very close second, would be uh, upgrading the shooting at the three position. Uh, and maybe the backup four, four position. It'll be interesting to see what we do at, at the backup four as well. But I really think we need one more sort of three and D sort of a guy who's a 37, 38, 39% three-point shooter who can really change the dynamic of the game off the bench. You know, Marcus Morris, not a knockdown shooter. Bring in somebody who, who can really spread the floor uh, and, and contribute offensively by stressing the floor and by also knocking down those shots. So that'd be one and two, a guy who can handle the ball off the bench and a guy who can shoot off the bench. And could that be the same player or just for the sake of depth, are you looking for two separate players for those roles? Well, if, he, if it's the same player, that probably means he's a starter. <laughs> I mean, because those are the guys that are in high demand. Um, but it could be. I mean, I think there are a couple free agent point guards on the market, and if, if Van Gundy wants to spend all of the cap space on a, a backup point guard who could feasibly play next to Reggie at shooting guard, maybe that could work, and maybe you could slide KCP uh, to the three in some of those second-unit rotations. Maybe that could work. But I think more realistically, you're probably looking at two separate players uh, to fill those roles. Yeah, that's very. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. You're right. If we're looking for somebody who can do everything, that that would be a starter. And for the Pistons to get someone like that, it probably means a trade. I'm I'm not sure if that type of player is coming to Detroit unless we slightly overpay for them, uh, which you've seen the Pistons do in, in moves to get guys like Jody Meeks and Aaron Baines. We paid a little bit above the market price for a player like that to get the the player we wanted to fill a certain role. Uh, and I think Stan Van Gundy and Jeff Bauer have really have a good idea of uh, not just the free agent market, but what a player is going to be worth in a couple of years when the cap explodes and it's over $100 million. And it can be difficult to see that right now, uh, but having an understanding of that when you're putting a team together is so crucial. Uh, and you're going to see teams make mistakes this summer. Uh, you already mentioned, you know, Del Vidova being a $12, $14 million player. He's a good player. I, I'm not sure if he is worth that type of money, uh, even you know after the cap goes up, because you're still putting in a, a big commitment to a guy like that. So the types of commitments that the Pistons make in terms of money through free agency this summer is going to be really interesting, because we don't have a lot to play with, but what we do have is really important for building this roster uh, into the next few seasons. And to be perfectly honest with you, it would not surprise me if the Pistons bide their time for another year with respect to free agency. Yeah, They're obviously going to go get some backup point guard. They have to. They have to get a backup point guard. But I think, you know, like right now, coming off of a 43-win season, 
they're not the free agent destination of the world by any stretch of the imagination. So you're right, they're probably going to have to pay a premium, or they're going to have to wait until everything else shakes out, you know, and, and catch somebody who somehow slips in the cracks. But think about it. If they get developed in the ways that we've discussed over the past 45 minutes or so, and they become a 48-win team or a 49-win team, maybe a, a player who's willing to take the mid-level exception at any number of teams is willing to come to Detroit and play for a team that's on the up-and-up for a couple years, even though it's not typically been you know, a free agent destination. We have some history of that, right? I mean, we have Antonio McDice. Very true. We have Chris Weber. We have those guys who are in the, you know, the, the twilight of their careers who want to come play for a team that legitimately has a chance to win. And I think if you get to 48 wins or something like that next year, you're maybe more competitive a year from free a year from now in free agency than you could be this year. So that's kind of what my gut tells me is they kind of play it safe. They buy their time. If there's a great trade, they take advantage of it, but they don't overspend to get guys who aren't going to move the needle past where they'd be, you know, anyways with internal development. Yeah, that's that's very true, and 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 you're right that the Pistons might be able to attract a player like that. And when I was looking at free agency, uh, in part just from just kind of researching it when I was putting together my own offseason plan, there is a big group of players that probably are worthy of a mid-level exception or maybe a little bit more than that. So you're looking at four to seven million dollars that might be really enticing to the Pistons, and it's actually a pretty a, it's actually a pretty big group of players. You've got Luol Deng, Joe Johnson, Jared Dudley, Evan Turner, Jeff Green, Matt Barnes, Gerald Green, Mirza Toledovich, uh, Ryan Anderson might be a little bit above that pay grade, um, Derek Williams. So all those guys are kind of, you know, at the 3-4 position, which is kind of where I see us looking for a veteran. Uh, you know, the point guard crop is just so strange this year, uh, and Unless there's some movements with guys being, you know, traded, I'm not sure what you're looking at unless you're overpaying for someone. Uh, But just from that group of players, I I think there's someone that might have interest in the Pistons if they see us moving in the right direction. And after the season, I think you have to think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and, you know, Detroit has the reputation of not being a free agent destination. Well, that's certainly true to a degree, Detroit does have a history of being able to attract players who are, you know, one step down from that marquee or one step down from being a starter or guys like Weber who are sort of at the tail end of their career. And one name I've thrown out, a guy who I actually really like is Jared Bayless. I think yeah. he's a really intriguing fit because he can play off the ball uh, and he can shoot. So he'd be, you know, I don't know what he's going to command in free agency. He's never really been, um, you know, he's never really – define himself as a full-time starter, so he might be a guy who doesn't get a big payday in spite of the cap blowing up. So he'd be a guy I'd add to your list, and I think that was a really interesting list. You know, any one of those guys, if you can add him to your bench, I think you've made an improvement. Uh, So I think there's real possibilities there for sure. Not to make a big splash, but to make a small incremental sort of uh, improvement to the second unit. Yes, and we've talked so much about uh, the, the leadership qualities and other things that can affect a bench unit, getting someone in there with some experience in the playoffs, uh, that can add to it as well. And, and Jared Bayless would have that. I think he would be a nice player uh, for this team if we can if we can land him because he can play the point guard spot and run the offense, but you're right, he can play off the ball and has been a very good shooter the last two seasons, uh, even in situations that weren't great, uh, including this last season in Milwaukee when he still shot very well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it was just sort of an awkward season all around for the Bucks. So it'd be hard to see them, you know, making a play to to bring him back. It doesn't really add up. So True. I, I really think he's a guy who's been underappreciated. I, I think he's a really quality player, and I, I think there's a chance that uh, he'd be a good guy. Be, he'd be a good fit, and he'd be a, a realistic target for that price point. Yes, I, I totally agree with you. Well, I wanted to end the episode uh, on, a, on a question that I think perfectly kind of sums up where we are at this point in the NBA season. Uh, and it actually came to us today through Twitter from Zachary Reichard uh, at Zach. Oh boy. At Don't even try. I've been, I've been acquainted with Zach for a long time. On okay. Twitter and I have no idea. <laughs> His Twitter handle is Z-A-J-A Reich. So that's, I had to give you the shout out because it's a great question. It's how we're going to end today's episode. Uh, so the question came in, do you consider this season a success and what makes a successful season next year? So unequivocally, yes, 100%. Emphatically, this season was a success. You became a winning team for the first time since, even the last time the Pistons made the playoffs, they were 39-43. and 43. So they weren't even right. a winning team in 08-09. So you're looking so at 2008. You haven't been a winning team since 07-08, so absolutely that's a success. And you made the playoffs in spite of getting swept. You made the playoffs in the same season that you became uh, a winning season. And I think the third thing I would say is there's actually some momentum in the fan base around Detroit basketball right now. I mean, in spite of the fact that the Pistons were never really in it at home in the playoffs, the fans were there because they believed that team could pull out a win against Cleveland. They were loud and they were engaged. And it brought back all of those sorts of awesome memories from that going-to-work team. They, they brought back out the, the uh, pyrometrics up off the backboards and all that stuff that we hadn't seen for a number of years. So without any hesitation, I think it was a success. What do you think about that question? Oh, I, I think it's a great question. And I, I think if we're talking about success this season, you just go back to the expectations in the offseason. And I think for everyone it was just get into the playoffs. It had been yeah. so long since this franchise had gotten into the playoffs. And I know it was killing the owner, Tom Gores, that this team, every year he makes the, the statement that this is the year, this is the year we're getting to the playoffs. And now in the second season under Stan Van Gundy, you saw the pieces in place. You saw the team get younger and start to build a core of pieces that are very interesting. And I think the season was a success. We had some really great stretches of basketball, especially right after the trade for Tobias Harris. And I think you're right, that gives us a bit of momentum heading into next season. Yeah, and how about, you know, putting aside all the numbers of wins and losses, this team was fun to watch. Yes, I mean, yes. I genuinely enjoyed watching this team. And when's the last time you could say that on a consistent basis? I mean, you had that really awesome win streak last year, but, man, an entire season of Pistons basketball that I legitimately, I legitimately was excited to turn the TV on every time they were on. So that, that in and of itself, I will take as a Pistons fan. Yeah, I agree. I watched more. I, I I watched more of the Pistons this season with enthusiasm every night and, and feeling like we had a chance every night, and that was a new feeling. Outside of you're right, that stretch of basketball we had when Brandon Jennings was healthy after we got rid of Josh Smith uh, two seasons ago, that was a great stretch of basketball. It was a lot of fun. But you're right. You're kind of going back to the going to work days, probably oh six oh seven, somewhere in there is is the last time that this team was really fun to watch. And that alone is great. The fact that we're competitive 
that any any night you feel like we can give teams a, a solid effort and have an opportunity to win. Hopefully the fans start to show up more during the regular season. You're right, it was so great to see them in the playoffs. I hope we start to sell out the Palace more uh, because it, it's that type of momentum that we as fans have to kind of carry as well. We have to continue to support the team going into next season because a successful year next year, once you've made the playoffs, I, I don't know about you, but I think it's success now is probably a top four seed in the East. Or do you think that's a little too lofty? Man... My gut tells me that's a little too lofty, um, but I think that might be the best thing to me saying that. <laughs> I think really, you know, if they had won two games against Cleveland, I think you could say top four seed is maybe realistic. What I would say is successful in terms of the regular season would be, in the first, you talked about roster building, although you didn't use that word. You talked about roster building as a success, getting younger, flexibility, SVG really having the type of team and type of roster that he wants. I would say going into next season, don't make a big mistake in free agency, which I don't expect they'll do. Maintain your flexibility. Improve on your win total. I think they have to get north of 45 wins to really feel like the regular season met expectations. And then I would like to see them, honestly, I would like to see them win two or three games. I think getting to a six or seven game series, regardless of where you're seated, would be a success. Um, because I, I, I'm expecting incremental improvement over this summer and a, a bigger step next summer um, because of the reason I just laid out. So I, I would say maybe caution is uh, appropriate. I would say let's let's win some games before we <laughs> expect to win playoff series. I guess I would look at it. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Just now that we're there, let's find a way to win some games and see if that can carry us into something uh, even more with this with this current core of players. Uh, yeah, that's right. A- because I think it's it's pretty well established. Teams don't go from a losing team in the playoffs to getting to the conference finals in one season. It just doesn't happen. It takes multiple right. years, and I don't know why that is the case. It's a fascinating, objectively true thing about the NBA. Something changes in the playoffs, and it becomes harder to win games, especially for those young, inexperienced teams. So, you know, for Tobias Harris, for example, success would be in the first round, he shows up every single night and contributes the way he did for 82 games in the regular season. That would be a success. And I think if that happens, you're going to to win two, three, and who knows, maybe in four games and, and upset somebody and win a series. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad this episode focused a bit more on the players currently on the roster because I know the big buzz right now for fans is, you know, you want to think about free agency. We're looking at the draft, and articles are starting to come in on Detroit Bad Boys uh, on specific draft prospects. But there's still a lot to think about with this current core of players. You're right. It's that that roster building that it, it is it is something to think about because, you know, no matter what players we add to this roster, we're still going to be looking at this core of players to take the next step if, if we want to win games in the playoffs. Uh, so, again, it's just having that perspective of who's here, you know? Not who can we go get, but who is actually here right now on this roster, and, and what does that mean for our future? So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a good way of looking at the team as we start slowly into the offseason because these things start to happen pretty quick uh, as the NBA Finals are, are just about to tip tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's not just who's here, but who are they? Who are these players? Because there's a lot yet to be proved, and there's a lot of unexplored talent and capacities on, on some of these young players. So 
Personally, that's what I'm looking for. You're of incremental improvements, another summer of discovery, uh, positioning the Drummond contender to emerge two or three de- years down the road, uh, not next year. Yeah, yeah, I think that's completely fair. Well, good. I'm, I'm happy with uh, the episode where it's at, if you're cool with We will probably talk to you in the next week or two. All right, sounds good. All right, man.